Hello and welcome to this week's Clax Wifey podcast, episode 54. And it's the week before Halloween, so this music is Something Wicked by Ross Bugden. Something wicked is coming our way for sure in the shape of beastly Boris Johnson's oven-ready turkey of a deal. He persists in calling it an Australian deal because he thinks that makes it sound sort of cuddly and friendly and a bit British. But he could equally call it the Afghanistan deal, the North Korean deal, the Nigerian deal. In fact, pick any place that doesn't have a decent deal with the EU call it a Martian deal. So we're going to kick off this week with a fabulous clip from Pete Wishart, who I think manages to convey just the absolute exasperation that we all feel watching this. Can't say the word I would like to say. So here's Pete. Pete Wishart. Pete Wishart. And thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. So here we go. The coveted No Deal is now in touching distance. The dance of the No Deal Seven Veils is now down to its Brexit underwear. The easiest deal in history will now mean the UK leaving on Mongolian terms. And the absolute rubbish we had to listen to about oven-ready deals and holding all the cards is now just the stuff of grotesque bad jokes. And whose fault is it? Well, not his or this cabal of Tory anti-EU obsessives. It's all the fault of these Europeans. How dare they ask the Tories to stand by what they agreed? How dare they ask for a level playing field and to retain the integrity of their single market? The EU must have the patience of saints to try and negotiate with these clown shoe-wearing goalpost shifters. And as we've just heard, the EU once again offered to have intensive talks. It's back in your court Secretary of State. And he somehow expects... Scotland to go along with this disaster. Well, there's a saying that he'll know as a proud Scot, which will be Scotland's response to this. He can go a woe and bile his heed. Independence is now the settled will of the Scottish people, with 58% of Scots now in favour. So here's a proposition to the Secretary of State. Why doesn't he just go off and get his no-deal Brexit, if that's what England indeed wants? And in Scotland, We can now secure our independence, what our people want, which will allow us to design our own future European relationship. Surely there's nothing wrong with that. He gets what he wants, we get what we want. Will he agree to that at last and say goodbye to his rotten union and his rotten no-deal Brexit? I think we all know how Pete's feeling in that clip. Coming up next, I've got Joanna Cherry, who is much more measured and dispassionate, but no less scathing of the effect of the Internal Market Bill in a debate which she called to consider the Lord Chancellor's oath. Now, I've left the full clip of this in the Clax Wifey podcast playlist on Indie Life Radio's YouTube channel, because I think it's a really interesting speech, but it's way too long for the amount of time we've got in this podcast, so I'm just going to play a clip from it. Finally, Mr Chair, I want to turn to look at the implications of the the Internal Market Bill 
for the union between Scotland and England. As well as breaking international law, the powers which the UK government seeks to give itself in the Internal Market Bill constitute an unprecedented threat to the powers of Scotland's Parliament and the devolution settlement. Now, now, last weekend in Scotland, we marked the 20th anniversary of the uh, late and very distinguished Labour Party politician, Donald Dewar, who was Scotland's first ever First Minister under devolution and the architect of the scheme of devolution set out in the Scotland Act of 1998, whereby every power not specifically reserved to this Parliament is devolved to the Scottish Parliament. What this bill does is for the first time to introduce a new principle into the devolution settlement by providing broad cross-cutting powers to allow ministers to enforce internal market provisions across devolved fields. And Clause 50 reserves state aid to Westminster after a dispute in which uh, the Welsh and Scottish governments argued that it had been devolved. And Clause 48 gives UK ministers wide powers to spend in devolved fields which changes the previous assumption that they would spend only in reserved fields and that, with a few exceptions, financial transfers to the devolved administrations would go through the block allocation governed by the Barnett formula. Holyrood is not getting any new powers that it didn't have already, but Westminster is getting sole control over state aid back, and in order to enforce the internal market, UK ministers are getting an explicit power to cut across decision-making by the Scottish Parliament in a whole range of devolved fields. Now, this is very important, not just because it undermines the devolved settlement, but it's important from a wider constitutional perspective. Because in 2014, when people living in Scotland were asked whether they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom or to return to our previous status as an independent, uh, sovereign nation, Various promises were made by those urging us to remain part of the United Kingdom. In particular, that if we did so, our Parliament would get more powers, would be strengthened and would become, to quote another Labour politician, the most powerful devolved Parliament in the world. But these weren't promises just made by Labour politicians. They were promises made by Conservative and Unionist politicians, who of course now are the party of government. And in 2016, a further Scotland Act was passed, which put the Sewell Convention on a statutory basis and entrenched the Scottish Parliament against abolition. In terms of Section 63A of the Scotland Act, it cannot be abolished without a referendum in Scotland. The Internal Market Bill circumvents these protections, not by abolishing the Scottish Parliament, but by removing the power it previously had to act unilaterally across a whole range of competences which impact on the day-to-day -day lives of people living in Scotland. And we also know, because of subsequent actions of this government, that the Sewell Convention cannot protect the devolved settlement. Uh, last week, uh, the Scottish Parliament withheld legislative consent to the Internal Market Bill, but nobody seriously thinks that it won't proceed because of that. Indeed, the Institute for Government have recently said that the Sewell Convention has been broken by Brexit. I would argue that this bill, the Internal Market Bill, breaks the devolution settlement. And the constitutional relationship between Scotland and England is not just about devolution, it's also about the act of union 
And that act of union continued because of promises made in 2014, which are broken uh, by this bill. And I would suggest, uh, Mr Chair, it has been the suspicion of many people in Scotland for a long time that the British government's word is no longer its bond. That is a perception reinforced by this bill. But the problem for the Lord Chancellor is it's not, re it's not reinforced just in Scotland. It's reinforced across the world, in Europe and as far as the United States of America. So to summarise, really, my, my argument about the Internal Market Bill in relation to Scotland is we need to see it not only through just the prism of devolution, a modern development, but also through the prism of the Treaty of Union. The Internal Market Bill had its second reading in the House of Lords this week and was defeated hugely, I'm pleased to say, by a staggering 226 votes. There were some excellent speeches in a debate that lasted hours and hours and hours, so I'm just going to pick out just a couple that I thought were particularly relevant to us. I entirely accept that the Sovereign Parliament of the United Kingdom has the power to legislate in breach of international law. That is not the issue which this bill presents. The question is not whether we can so legislate. The question is whether we should. I don't often quote the President of the European Commission. <laughs> but then the President of the European Commission doesn't often quote Margaret Thatcher. And what Mrs. Thatcher said was this, Britain does not break treaties. It would be bad for Britain, bad for relations with the rest of the world, and bad for any future treaty on trade. My lords, that says it all. I was uh, surprised, nay astonished, by the fact that, that my noble friend, the minister, in his opening remarks, did not deal with, or even unless my hearing has totally failed me, even mention the fact that part five of the bill is in breach of international law. The admission by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland uh, in another place that it would be in breach, that it is in breach, was not, as was suggested by one of my noble friends in the recent debate in Grand Committee, merely a clumsy form of words. Those words were read from a brief. They were prepared. They were premeditated. They were deliberate. They represented the government's clear intention. And as far as I'm aware, the government has not sought to resile from them. It was argued that, uh, suggested, that the dispute resolution provisions in the withdrawal agreement would be activated in parallel with the activation of the provisions in the bill. But I draw your Lordship's attention to Article 168 of the Withdrawal Agreement, a short article, I should read it in full. For any dispute between the Union and the United Kingdom arising under this agreement, the Union and the United Kingdom shall only have recourse, shall only have recourse to the procedures provided for in this agreement. Now, the government may have second thoughts about that article. They may regret that they signed up to it, but it's too late. They did sign up to it. They are bound by it, and they should honour it. My Lords, 
Together with the majority of those who voted in the 2016 referendum, I voted for Brexit. I do not for one moment regret or resile from that vote. I want the United Kingdom to be an independent sovereign state. But I want it to be an independent sovereign state that holds its head up high in the world, that keeps its word, that upholds the rule of law, that honours its treaty obligations. I want it to be an independent sovereign state that is a beacon unto the nations. I do not want it to be an independent sovereign state that chooses as one of the first assertions of that sovereignty to break its word, to break the law, and to renege on a treaty that it signed barely a year ago. When we first heard about this bill, we were sceptical about the need for legislation and particularly concerned about the impact on relations with the devolved institutions. I'll come later to the rule of law issue, which is now receiving greater attention. But I do want to emphasize the impact in terms of the unity of the United Kingdom. And this bill remains a major concern in respect of this. The committee believes that there is no reason why the principles for the successful operation of the UK internal market cannot be arrived at consensually. There is, after all, broad agreement on the need to avoid erecting new barriers to trade. There are existing mechanisms to achieve this, including, of course, the common framework arrangements, which we are sometimes told are working well. And the government has never explained why these mechanisms are inadequate. Moreover, the devolved administrations are required by law to adhere to international obligations such as trade treaties. And if the government is committed to the union, then it needs an internal market that all parts of the union have bought into. I must reiterate my view about the lack of necessity for this bill. There is general agreement that we need a thriving internal market. No one has argued against it, and there are existing arrangements that can deliver this. I first of all would like to deplore that a government bill should contain Clause 45-2A, which trashes the UK's reputation for upholding its treaties and honouring its obligations, and seriously undermines our ability to negotiate effective agreements. I believe it reveals that the government is under the stranglehold of anarchists and disruptors. Indeed, I have no doubt that it suits the dark forces in the government that this part of the bill has diverted attention from the other deeply damaging proposals which cut across the devolution settlements to which I now turn. I was closely involved with the Scottish Constitutional Convention, which laid the basis of the Scotland Act and subsequent further extension of powers. I'm a passionate home ruler, but deeply inimical to the breakup of the UK, which I believe will cause fundamental and lasting economic and indeed emotional division and hardship. And in typically British fashion, devolution has evolved differently in each devolved administration, nor is it written into a basic law, but it has become accepted and it works. And one of the reasons for this has been the overarching umbrella of the European Union now being removed. 
awareness of the implications of this were addressed by the Joint Ministerial Committee on EU negotiations in October 2017, with a joint communique setting out principles behind the common frameworks, which many noble lords referred to. As a member of this House's newly established Common Frameworks Committee, I am now aware that this work has been progressing slowly but constructively. A dispute mechanism is envisaged but has not yet been required. And it's the view of the devolved administrations that this process is both fit for purpose and practical. As the Constitutional Committee stated, it appears that this bill is anticipating problems that may never arise, but seeking powers that prejudice the effective and consensual working of devolution. By contrast, the devolved administrations can identify how the powers in this bill would allow the UK government to block or disrupt the working of devolution. This could affect building regulations, where, as has been pointed out in Scotland, we want higher insulations, we might want lower carbon specs. It could affect single-use pl plastics, where Wales and Scotland want tighter restrictions than England. The mutual recognition and non-discrimination rules could nullify such divergence, which is why devolved administrations argue it could be an England-led race to the bottom. Clause 46 and 47 give the UK government powers to initiate spending in the devolved administration areas without requiring the engagement or consent of the respective governments. The motivation behind this seems blatantly disruptive. No doubt the people of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland may welcome extra cash from the Treasury over and above their own resources of, sources of revenue. City deals are an example of that. However, for such a measure to be pursued without the participation or consent of the parliaments or governments is the total negation of devolution. And what is more, to be pursuing this only months before crucial elections in Scotland and Wales is a monumental misjudgment by a government that cares nothing for devolution, talks union while trampling all over the settlements that are essential to holding it together. The bill is not just unnecessary, it's downright provocative, shows utter contempt for the hard-won measures that are essential to holding the United Kingdom together. Ideally, this bill will not proceed. If it does, it must be with the removal of law-breaking and the requirements of consent from the devolved administrations, which currently seems unlikely to be forthcoming or even sought. What is missing from the government's approach is any concern, consideration or comprehension of the delicate balance of devolution. And this is well summarised in the report published by the Centre on Constitutional Change. When five archbishops are motivated to put their anxieties into print, it's time for the government to recognise this hastily concocted and ill-thought-out bill is not fit for purpose, whatever the purpose is meant to be. So there we are, the House of Lords that we so often decry as being unnecessary, proving that it is the voice of reason. And it was interesting, I thought, that those voices included Brexiteers, Unionists, Tories, Labour. They're all outraged at what's happening, clearly. And not just the point about the rule of law and the, the challenge to their perhaps rose-tinted vision of how wonderfully well the United Kingdom is regarded throughout the world. I, I don't think it is. But also they do seem to grasp the position of the devolved parliaments. So it's really good that those messages have been getting through. And I was particularly interested to hear the government described as disruptors. I think they've got the measure of Cummings and his sidekick. So the next step is the bill has to go back to the House of Commons. And at the end of the day, the government with their 80-seat majority can steamroller it through. The Lords does have the ability to slow everything down. They can slow the process down by up to a year. Whether they will or not remains to be seen, but this is not over yet. On 
on Indie Live Radio's daytime show this week, there was a great interview with Heather Anderson, who was the shortest serving Scottish MEP. And she too was talking about the Internal Market Bill. And I think it was really helpful to see her explanation of the issues as well. And Heather has a farming background, so she's very clued up on the implications for our food producers. There's so many things happening here that everybody rushes to the first um, challenge, like breaking and breaching international law. Yes. And that gets a lot of attention. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's also demolishing devolution. And meanwhile, it's also eradicating standards. And meanwhile, it's also <laughs> removing state aid. So there's so many attacks. Um, my worry is all the focus is on one bit of the bill, which is absolutely dreadful. And we don't notice just how bad all the other bits of the bill are. What happened previously was um, state aid would come from Europe to Scotland and Scotland would decide what it spent its infrastructure and support money on. This bill absolutely says that it is going to reserve to the Crown the powers to decide um, on what happens with state aid. Now that means the Scottish Government has no say over it. So infrastructure, investment, whether we have new roads, new railways, a new hospital, that's all going back to Westminster. It also gives the, the Westminster government absolute control to intervene in education, training, economic development, infrastructure, culture, sport. These are all devolved powers. A way back at the end of the Act, um, there's a paragraph which talks about the regulation of the provision of distortive and harmful subsidy. And it basically says that any business, whether or not um, they are based in the UK or out with the UK, can claim discrimination and um, unfair treatment if the product they're providing is being provided by a business here who receives what they consider to be distortive or harmful subsidy. Right. So um, the UK government, DEFRA, the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, are reducing subsidy to farmers in England and Wales to zero over the next seven years. So the, 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 the current subsidy system will reduce to zero and there will be a replacement, which we don't have the details about yet. So over that period of time, any farmer in England or Brazil can say, I'm trying to sell beef to this market and they're getting an unfair subsidy. And I was really concerned about this because there's a list of exceptions. You might have heard about the issues with NHS. The National Health Service is an exception at the moment, but agriculture isn't listed. So my concern was, does that mean that anybody can challenge the right of the Scottish government to support Scottish farming? And I've got a reply from Mike Russell, which says, as you correctly point out, agricultural subsidies are not mentioned in the exclusions to this clause. This means there is the potential for UK ministers, if they so decide, to declare farm subsidies to be distorting competition. The full interview with Heather is available on Indie Live Radio's podcast channel and I will also put a link to it in the Clax Women for Indie Facebook page. It is well worth listening to and there's so much more that she's got to say about the implications of this bill, including a particularly awful bit on labelling and if you thought chlorinated chicken was bad, 
wait until you hear about a burger made from untraceable beef from up to a thousand animals that you won't even know. They won't tell you that on the label. It's horrifying. She also turned to the more basic matter of food security and the quality of the food that we eat. I did this wonderful session. I just loved it. with Women for Indy. And we had a hundred, over a hundred women in a in a church hall. This is before COVID uh, hit, obviously. And um, I did a talk about the history of food in Scotland and exports and the drovers and feudalism and all this kind of stuff and sustainability and how the future could be different. And then we gave uh, everybody went into groups of ten and we gave them fifty statements and they had to prioritise their top ten statements about how they wanted the food system to be. And then we went round the you know eleven tables and we came up with a composite ten commandments wow. and for the future of food in Scotland and they put it in their manifesto. And it's just brilliant because it's about that whole thing about I'm I'm not an organic farmer because I'm elitist or niche. I think every I just think organic food is food without crap added and I think everybody should have the right to have decent clean safe food um and, and it's and everybody should be able to afford it and I was so interested I actually asked her a question as well I've got a question here from you for from a listener for you uh, Heather uh, it's Fiona McGregor who's um, part of Clack Man and Share Women for Independence and she's listening in and she's got a farming question for you yep. and her question is given the need for food security and the issues with Brexit should our planning laws be changed so that we don't give planning permission for housing developers to build on productive land people need houses but there is so much other land that could be repurposed local to her uh, she says that they're about to get housing development on what is currently a farmer's field growing crops. Um, so what would you... Yeah. Um, um, arable land, land that's capable of producing cereals, um, is the most valuable commodity in the world, right? So if you actually take the planet, um, three quarters of the surface of our planet is covered in water, and one quarter of our planet is covered in earth, land. One quarter of that is ice cap, one quarter of that is desert, one quarter of that is mountain. So one sixteenth of the surface of our planet is capable of producing anything. Two thirds of that is only capable of producing grass. And the tiny third of the sixteenth, which is the one forty eighth of the surface of our planet, is arable. Yep. And we don't have another planet. And if you divide that amount of arable land by the people on the planet, we've got 2,000 metres square. That's what we've each got to feed all of us, right? And grow the cereals and the crops. And in Scotland, a tiny percentage of our land is arable. So we've got 85%, which is called less favoured area, which basically means it's hill and grass. We're brilliant at growing beef because they eat the grass. And it's, it's rainy, it's wet all the time. <laughs> And 15% of our land mass is arable. So for Scotland to allow anything <laughs> to be put on that unbelievably valuable resource is is um, unwise, if you ask me. And I think it's raising people's consciousness about that and saying, you know, it's not that we've got an unlimited supply of um, arable ground. And once you put concrete in it, it doesn't work very well in terms of growing carrots or potatoes or cereal 
Um, and we use a huge amount of our arable land in Scotland, almost half of it, to grow barley for whiskey. Yeah. So we're, we're not using it to grow. Um, we grow tatties and seed potatoes. Um, and there was a thing on the TV a couple of weeks, a week or so ago, about them losing their export market oh, because yes. of the deal. Um, but we could do an awful lot here to grow our own veg, and we could use polytunnels yeah. and, you know, and and so that thing about taking the future of food production in Scotland and actually saying what land have we got, what is the best use for that land, and then um, supporting communities. Um, and farmers to use that land to its optimal use you know so if it's grass it's for grazing it's for livestock because they can eat the grass and we can't and that produces protein and but the arable stuff we should be looking at far more um, horticultural production yeah. and yeah so I get mad at that that's a really full answer can I just say um, a wee reaction from Fiona there um, in her chat box, she, a chat thread she says that was a fantastic answer you gave to her question oh, <laughs> right okay so we grow, we use the land we've got to grow the food we need, absolutely I'm right yeah, with you yeah. but, No virtual coffee shop for us this week, but we were out again litter picking. This time we went to Gartmourne Dam, which is a, a beautiful country park in Alloa, and here's how we got on. Yeah, we're in Gartmourne Dam. It's a lovely day. It's a little bit chilly, but the rain is off, uh, and we're going to start a litter pick. So we did this a couple of weeks ago in our respective villages round about Clotmanningshire, and now we're going to come together as a group and do a coordinated litter pick in Gartmourne Dam. What a lovely excuse to be in Gartmourne Dam, eh? Oh, it's gorgeous. The one thing we can't see is an awful lot of litter, but... No, it looks like somebody's been here before. Yeah. Guy, what he did say was that, yeah, they quite often send squads up here to do it. So, the thing is, if we don't find a lot, we don't find a lot. Well, no, that's a good thing if we don't, isn't yeah. it? and we can report back on that look yeah. up. But... Oh, and we need to get some pictures as well because the chick is going to put them on the website for Gartmourne oh, Dam. So that's more publicity. Like a unionist in a really, were they, were they scowling? <laughs> Politicising litter is kind of pathetic, really, isn't it? <laughs> Apart from to the extent that we do it, of course. Listeners to our previous podcast will know that we had submitted an article about our litter-picking activities to the Aloha Advertiser. And I'm pleased to report that they did publish quite a nice article about uh, the litter-picking that we'd done. It was in the, the printed copy of the paper and also their online version. And there is a link to that in the Clax Women for Indy Facebook page if anybody is interested enough to go and dig it out. Well, that was the other thing I said. The point, if, if anyone says that's the council's job to do that, I'm like, no, it's your responsibility to not throw it away in the first place. Yeah. And, OK, we pay the council to do a service. doesn't mean we can't also yeah. take responsibility. Now, normally, Clax wifeys are absolutely focused on the task in hand, completely dedicated to it. Think of nothing else but getting the job done, unless something else catches our eye. And it did. Oh, is there alpacas? A picnic and thing, and they had like, uh, so maybe they're waiting on the alpacas coming. Shall we wander around? Yes. Alpacas. <laughs> alpacas. Right. I I'll can't think of anything some, nicer than. I'll stick some poly bags in. Uh, we think that's alpacas just arrived. We were going to go and 
around and see them coming out. <laughs> <laughs> and if they drop anything, we'll pick it up. But <laughs> are the alpacas in the back of the van? I presume so. I want to go around and see them though. Sorry, I'm I do too. I want to see alpacas. I'm quite excited. I know. Me too. I mean, this is just an unexpected bonus. <laughs> oh look, alpacas. Could you? Yeah, yeah just for Thank you. We're live in Gartmorn Dam. And they've got alpacas. They're just the cutest things. Hello. Hello. What's your name? They're so smiley looking. Hello. Try not to get anybody's faces in it. They've got lovely eyelashes. <laughs> We're doing a bit of a live stream here. Oh, he's going to eat the fish. <laughs> Spotted a tasty looking bush. Oh, brilliant. I want to get a picture as well. Right, we're at Gartmon Dam doing our litter pick, but we spotted llamas, so we got distracted. We'll have to come back to you. But given the dedicated activists that we are, we were soon back on track. Well, that's made my day seeing them. <laughs> Just want to take one home. <laughs> It's lovely and soft, isn't it? Yeah. Go on, do you two want to go and stand and I'll take your picture? Totally focused on the task in hand. Any minute now. Right, let's get some litter picked. We are finding some litter, but not actually a lot. But we got distracted by llamas. Beautiful, big, cuddly llamas. Was that somebody saying thank you to you? That's nice. See, people appreciate it when we do the... You just don't expect to see a llama in Gartland. Aren't they just so cute? You could put one in your garden, couldn't you? What would they need? A little shed? Oh, yeah, yeah, they do like the shed. They probably need company. I think one llama Oh, no, two Two llamas. Yeah. But you could have the wool. Could spin it. Well, it really is nice to report that there's there's not very much at all for us to find. Well, I mean, we've all got we've got about six sacks on the go, but not by any means are we finding a lot of litter, which is great. Oh, some purple mushrooms! See that? There was a big kind of creamy one as well in the in that I saw. Thing is, you've got to be so sure in your identification. Oh God, I would never lost them. I'm not that confident. That's been freshly dropped. Look at it. I bet that's not been there longer than a, an hour. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's somebody walking in front from the council, <laughs> scattering stuff. Hey, right. I'll take that if you want. Uh, oh, what's that rum? MD twenty twenty. Oh, that's real jakey stuff. Well, we were just saying actually we're not finding very much, which is a good thing. <laughs> it is good. Yeah, I thought that was quite a lot, but I guess normal. It's, yeah. Hello. Thank you. <laughs> Lady there was saying, um, isn't it amazing how much people drop? And I was saying, oh no, we hardly find anything. She's going, but look how much is in your sack. And I thought, well, actually, yeah. Look how much we've picked up. I know. Is it I know, I'm oh, just lost 
you're doing a great job. Thank you. <laughs> it was lovely tramping through the autumn leaves picking litter and Gartmorn Dam and many, many people that we passed said thank you or well done and we're really appreciative. We didn't get any negative feedback this time. No Union Jack masks looking at us. In fact, we were out far longer than we intended. We thought it'd be an hour and we were there about two and a half hours. So just time for one final live stream to our Facebook page. Okay, we're live to our Facebook page. Here's today's little haul of bin bags. Eight bags. That was great. So, you enjoy that? I did enjoy it. I enjoyed picking up the letter. There wasn't really that very much of it. And I also enjoyed this having a cat and a book. You know, that's eight bags. You're live to Facebook. You're live to Women for Indie Facebook. So, you want to say any man things, you can do <laughs> Well, if I was going to say anything, how's the football if, doing? If, if I was going to do any say any man things, I'd be expected. I'd expect to be women's playing to later on because men are usually not fully conversed with what they're talking about. Well done, in you've you've book. learned. Right, that's today's pick. Anyway, we thoroughly enjoyed it. Might do another one in a fortnight, and we'll catch you later. Coming up, we've got a couple of things to look forward to during the week. On Wednesday, we're going to try and do a poetry recording session by Zoom, which should be quite fun. You'll probably know that we have a poetry and jazz show on Indie Live Radio that goes out at one o'clock on Sunday afternoons. And back in pre-COVID days, we used to swan around the salons of Aloha pretending we were beat poets and reciting poetry and recording it, which was great fun. But of course, we can't do that nowadays, so we, we were working our way through our back stock of poetry. We're going to try it by Zoom, see how that goes. So hopefully we'll have enough for a, a Halloween special next week and perhaps a few other new poetry shows to come after that. So that's Wednesday. If anybody has any poetry that they'd like to share or would like to contribute or poetry they'd like to read who would like to take part in that Zoom, uh, you're very welcome. If you get in touch with us via our Facebook page or if you email me at fiona at indielive.radio, then we'll give you the Zoom details if you'd like to join us. I think we've also got our stash of Halloween-themed Yes Stones, which are ready to go out next Saturday. Then we have another monthly meeting, again by Zoom, and then we'll decide what we're doing for the next couple of months of our action plan. I think we'll do at least another litter pick and another Bridges session, and that'll probably take us up to the beginning of December, and then we'll see where we are. Like everybody else, we are still limited by the COVID restrictions and Clackmannanshire, being part of the Forth Valley Health Board area, is subject to the Central Belt additional lockdown measures. So I think we're being fairly creative in what we managed to come up with. It is an ongoing challenge. So if anybody's got any great ideas for things we haven't thought of, do shout. And just finally, talking of lockdown and pandemics, 2020 is the year that just keeps giving. Um, grief, that is. You'll remember a couple of episodes ago, I shared the recording of an interview that Lynn had done when she'd had her haircut for charity in honour of two friends of hers, both of whom had been having cancer treatment. Uh, one of those friends, Senga, 
had nominated Indie Live Radio to be the recipient of the donation, which was wonderful. And Indie Live Radio, very grateful for the support that, that helps keep them on the air. But sadly, we heard at the weekend that Senga has passed away. So we're all very, very sad that she's gone, but absolutely privileged to have known her. Senga was one of the original slate painters, very, very talented artist, and has left some beautiful pieces of art behind for us to remember her by. She was an absolute patriot, dedicated to Scottish independence. Lovely lady. So we'll dedicate this episode of Clackswipey podcast to our friend Senga. We're pretty sure she'll be looking down on us the day we declare independence for Scotland. We were also very sad to hear Paul Kavanagh's stroke, which has left him paralysed down one side. There is a crowdfunder on the go to help him get some more suitable accommodation to, to carry on playing the vital part that he plays for the Yes movement. So if you'd like to contribute to that, it's the Wee Ginger Doug crowdfunder. And of course, the Wee Ginger Doug himself has died. In the same week as Paul had his stroke, is just piling misery upon misery, but I would like to think that we ginger will be on our stamps when we're in independent Scotland, if not also on the currency. So just when you think 2020 can't get any worse, eh? However, life goes on, the fight goes on. So Halloween on Saturday, we might not be able to go out guising, but they can't stop us dressing up as witches in the comfort of our own home, eating popcorn and watching scary movies. And that's exactly what I intend to be doing. So we'll catch you all next time. Have a wonderfully spooky Halloween. Bye now.